on December the 22nd, 2008. I was sitting in a hospital waiting room with friends who were going through a very difficult time and I pulled up my, at that time it was a Blackberry and I hit send on an email because Danae and I had just finished some paperwork that was just initial paperwork to commit to adopt two boys in Ethiopia. And the agency director had been corresponding with me through email and Danae and I did not want to kind of shop for kids, and so we didn't want to see any pictures until we had finished the paperwork, because we were committing uh, to these boys, even without seeing them. Uh, That was our decision from the beginning, and so we finished the paperwork, and she asked, do you want to see a picture of them now? And I just responded, yes. And Danae said, you cannot look at that picture until you get home. I don't know if she knows this yet, I'm confessing sin maybe right now, but I had to stop by my office on the way home, and I could not help myself. I went over to my computer, and at the time, Wi-Fi, all that was a little different at that time, as the, as the pictures kind of uploaded or downloaded onto my computer, um, my life changed in a way I never expected And then just three days later, Christmas changed for all of the Haskins. We were celebrating with four of our kids, and we were coming to terms with this story of two boys in Ethiopia who ironically had had four siblings die of malnutrition. And there I sat in my house with four Sons and daughters who would be brothers and sisters to these boys. Their biological mom had died of malnutrition. And we were coming to terms with that story and what it was going to mean to uh, finish this adoption, funds and paperwork. I think we spent that whole uh, holiday season just getting things ready and sending things over. And it was so busy and chaotic. But it's one reason I never spend... Christmas without constantly thinking about adoption. It's just sort of imprinted in that season for me because I'm reminded of of all of those different moments in pursuing the adoption of these two boys, my two sons, Jonah and Isaac, who were in Ethiopia at this time, at that time. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, you cannot think about Christmas without thinking about adoption. Because you can't understand the gospel without understanding not the illustration of adoption, but the reality of adoption. Galatians is written to a group of believers who are being persecuted by a group of false teachers called the Judaizers. The Judaizers had infiltrated the church and They were saying, it's great that you believe in this Jesus of Nazareth, and it's great that you are Christians, and it's great that you're gathering as churches, but you're not really a part of the family of God. You understand that unless you become Jewish. 
And the Jews are really the family of God. This is just sort of a pretend family of God that you're acting like, specifically the Gentiles. You have no rights and you have no privileges to God's family. That was given to Israel, the Jews. And so they began to teach that, that, yeah, it's Jesus, but you have to add the Old Testament law to Jesus. And you have to add traditions and festivals, specifically circumcision, to be a real child of God. And Paul writes this letter, and he is very, very angry. The letter begins by Paul saying, if that is the gospel you preach... Be damned to hell. That is a false gospel, and you are leading people to hell by preaching it. And anyone who preaches that gospel or any other gospel than the one that Jesus has delivered to us, may they be anathema. That's how serious Paul is about the gospel. And he teaches us in Galatians that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Not just nothing, but hell. And yet Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Heaven. That's how to sum up Galatians. And yet, when we get to chapter 4, he's still trying to prove this point. That it's not tradition, it's not law, it's not even your ethnicity that gives you an upper hand in the family of God. It's only Jesus Christ. It's only being found in him as sons, children of God. And this is what he begins to teach in chapter 4. Notice verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then summarize what he's saying there. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What Paul is teaching here in these three verses is, in the same way, a child, even in the home, a child has no rights to the father's inheritance until the father decides to give it to him, until the father signs it over to him. And so he's saying, even the Jew according to their ethnicity, according to their history, the Old Testament, the promises first given to Abraham, Moses, and the law, and the prophets, this great rich history that they have as the people of God. They have no rights, even with all of that, to God's promises until God decides to give it to them. And so the Jew would say, whoa, whoa, Paul, what about the law? Because we were the only people on the planet who had been given the law, the Old Testament law, summarized in what we know as the Ten Commandments, over 600 laws and traditions that were given to the Jews to set them apart in the world from everybody else as God's chosen people, as God's family. Paul, the law made us God's children. And so we have first rights as God's children the Jews, Israel. And Paul says, no, no, no. Here's how it works. The law was just a guardian. The law wasn't your father. 
The law was a babysitter or a teacher that was teaching you about your father, that was teaching you how to act as children of God. The law just showed you the ABCs, the basics of being children of God, but the law was not determined to give you the promise. The law wasn't determined to give you the inheritance. One of the points he makes in Galatians is the promise came before the law. The law didn't change the promise. But until the promise came in Christ, the law was babysitting you, holding you in line. That was its purpose. And the law could never give you the inheritance. And why is that? Because you could not obey the law perfectly. If you are trying to earn God's inheritance, his promise, if you are trying to remain a child of God, according to the law, you will fail because you can't keep it perfectly. And that's what Paul says here is that is a form of slavery. Even as a a child of God, according to your ethnicity that you claim, the law enslaved you in in a way where you could not receive the promise according to the law because you could not obey the law perfectly. And one of his points here is there is only one perfect son who obeyed the law. And so there is only one son who can lay claim to the inheritance, and it's Jesus. What this babysitter, what this guardian, what the law proved is only Jesus deserved the inheritance, and that's the reason for Christmas. Notice the text continues, verse 4. You couldn't lay claim to the inheritance in and of yourself, but when the fullness of time had come, You could do nothing about your status. You were like a slave in the house who could not go and lay claim to the inheritance. But when the fullness of time had come. Hear this word fullness. It means complete. It means full. It literally means history was pregnant, ready for this moment. Everything was in place It was the father's time to give the inheritance. And notice how he does it. God sent forth his son. He sent him forth. God who has always existed in eternity past. Who has always been there at this exact moment, time and place, history. He sent forth his son. Son means he is like the Father in every way. His essence, he is 100% God. It also means that the Son is his King, the only one who can rule all things. And at this moment, the table was set by God to send him into the world. There was a Joseph and Mary who would be sent to Bethlehem under the rule of pagan kings. There was a Judas being born who would eventually betray him. There were Pharisees who were studying the law. There there were Romans who were training in crucifixion. And it came down to this one moment in time where the father said, now is the time to give the inheritance to anyone who would believe. And he sent the son into the world for that exact moment. Even more, there were channels of culture and commerce. 
that would, that would be used to, from, from the moment of the resurrection to send the message of this king into the world. Because of that exact moment in time, we have Bibles in our hand in this moment. The fullness of time. History was pregnant and God sent forth his son into the world. But notice how he did it. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Now we have labored over the past uh, few weeks to explain what the virgin birth means. A hundred percent God in every way. His likeness, his essence, his nature Jesus, the Word who has always existed, was born of woman. The womb of Mary was set apart so that the eternal Son of God could could take on embryo, who could become a, a child who was born into the world, who could grow into a mature man. God overshadowed the womb of Mary. His Son was born of a woman, the incarnation. But notice specifically... He was born under the law. He wasn't just um, to the Jews present. Jesus wasn't just a man. He was a Jewish man. And when he was born, he was responsible to keep the law. Every demand that God had placed on his people and on the world in the holy law, every jot and tittle of the law, is placed upon the son who is born of woman from circumcision to every Sabbath that must be kept. Every demand of holiness that is revealed in God's law, culturally, traditionally, legally, morally, ethically, spiritually, all of the demands that God had in mind when he revealed himself in his holy commandments in the law are placed upon Jesus. That slavery that the law brings and the demands to fulfill it perfectly were placed upon him the moment he entered the world. And what is the reason why? To redeem those under the law. Now, this is specifically the Jews who were given the law, but ultimately God's character and God's perfection, all men are under the law. Because to get to heaven, you must be perfect And that's what the law shows, is you must be perfect to get to heaven. So those demands are on every man, every woman, every child, everyone born in the image of God. And this image is marred by sin. The law is placed upon us. But he was born under the law, not to flaunt his perfection, not to hold it over us and condemn us. But notice the word. To redeem. And it means to purchase back. It's a term used of slaves who are purchased out of slavery into freedom. And those who are under this slavery of the law, God's righteous character is revealed in the law, but we can't match it. We can't fulfill it. That that demand is placed on him, not to prove he is righteous, but ultimately to offer his righteousness to God in our place. And so we say, why Christmas? Why the incarnation? Why did God take on flesh? Because only one who is 100% God could fulfill the law 100%. 
And that's why he became a slave to the law, to live under the law perfectly. He does what is impossible for us, to free us, to redeem us. You see, the baby, we often think like this at Christmas, the baby in the manger was born to die. God was giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. But he wasn't just born to die. He was born to live first and to live a perfect life that you could not live in flesh and blood. God's first Christmas present to you is the righteousness of his son in flesh and blood. In Jesus, God didn't give you some digital Amazon gift card. We don't really have to interact with the person. You just credit it to their account. No, you must be perfect to get to heaven. Do you understand that? To be in God's presence, you must be without sin. And you must have in your account a perfect life. And you can't do it on your own. In Jesus, he credits you, gives you that perfect life. Not in abstract, but 33 years of sinless perfection. Every moment, every second lived in righteousness for you. That is his gift in Jesus for you. And when you believe in him, this is what it means. You are justified. You are declared righteous as though you had never sinned and you had always obeyed. Why? Because he never sinned and he always obeyed. That's God's gift to you today at Christmas is 100% righteousness, the righteousness of his son lived out in flesh and blood. And notice the way Paul positions this. This is a gift of freedom from the law, a gift of freedom from your sin. Christmas is a gift of freedom to sinners. It means you are free from that wicked heart where you try so hard, I'm, I'm, this week I'm going to do it right. This week I, I, I'm, going to do, I'm going to do what's right this week. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to, I'm going to be nice to people. And I'm going to be kind to people. And, and, and you realize by the end of the week I failed again. Why is that? You have a sinful, wicked heart that turns inward and you want to serve yourself. And the guilt of that, because of Jesus's perfect, every perfect day he lives is given to you when you believe in him. You are free from that wicked heart. And you are to enjoy the freedom by believing in him. Perfection that flowed from a pure heart. You are free from from the guilt at at the end of every day. And you set back and you you are convicted of the things that you said and the things that you did and the things that you thought. And sometimes those things keep you up at night and you live in that bondage. You live under the slavery of that guilt. You are free because the reality is Jesus responded perfectly in every situation. He never said those things. He never did those things. He never thought those things that condemn you. Christmas is a gift of freedom for those who would believe in Jesus. Those emotions that that you think sometimes, where did those things come from? Almost as though you don't have any control over them. 
Jesus controlled his emotions perfectly with righteousness. His anger in the temple. Righteous indignation toward what was wrong. He was perfect in doing that. He also had perfect compassion that made him want to vomit as he looked over Jerusalem and said, there are sheep without a shepherd. And he longed to rescue his people. That perfect compassion is credited to you and gives you freedom from your self-centeredness. Jesus' righteousness is a gift of freedom. But notice why. The text continues. So that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the purpose of his perfect life. He took on flesh and he perfectly obeyed the Father so that we might receive. We might get the gift of adoption. Now adoption means giving someone the legal status of their child. But notice specifically as sons. The Bible can't be gender neutral here. Why is that? Because the firstborn son is the one who gets the inheritance. And Jesus is a son. And so his, your status before God is the same as Jesus. So in Jesus, you are a son in the son. That's your status. Doesn't mean your gender changes physically, biologically. But your status before God is son in the son and this is how he adopts us this is how he gives us the status when we believe in him he gives us the status of his son by faith we are adopted based on jesus's credentials we are given his privileges and we are given his inheritance we are really adopted when we believe in jesus this is a real thing when you believe in jesus you go from being an undeserving slave An orphan with no identity and no inheritance to having everything Jesus has. To being a son in the son with the same status and identity as Jesus. That's what adoption is. And God created adoption. So often we think adoption is just an illustration, some sort of metaphor, kind of like marriage. God's saying, I really need to communicate my love to the people of the world, let me think how to do that. Oh, people get married? Interesting. I will use marriage as an illustration to say that my son loves the church, his bride. That's not the way it happened. God creates marriage because the son loves the bride. It is the gospel that comes first. It's the same thing with adoption. God's not saying, how do I really communicate that you really are my children? Oh, you mean families adopt kids? You mean that that kind of thing happens? Okay, it's like that. It's not like that. It is that. And adoption began in the mind of God in eternity past. And it's not like what God has done uh, for us. It is what God has done to us. Now, some of us have a problem with that because we emphasize the flesh so much. And we think these things aren't real unless they happen according to the flesh. And one thing Paul is trying to communicate in Galatians is according to the flesh, you are a child of Adam. According to the flesh, Satan is your father. 
That is who you are according to your sinful flesh. And so adoption has to happen or you can't be a Christian. God's got to do something beyond your flesh, beyond your deeds, beyond your DNA. And he legally makes you a son in the son. Adoption isn't an illustration. It's not like what God has done for us. It is what God has done for us. It's real. He's legally made you his child with the status of the son. And this is what it means for you. It's not God loves us like we are his kids. He loves us because we are his kids in Christ. That's the gospel. And if adoption is not real, and if it's not something God set forth, then you can't be a child of God. It's not fake. Adopted kids aren't pretend kids. They have legally been made children of the Father, given the right status and privilege. And the adoption of the gospel is more real than anything that you could ever imagine because it began in God. It is the reality of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians that God predestined us to adoptions as sons before anything else ever existed. He said, I'm going to make these rebels my children. And the lamb was slain in the mind of God before the foundation of the world so that this would happen. All of this began in the mind and heart of God. We adopt not to show God this is how you do it. No, we adopt to be like God. And to express the gospel in this way. If adopted kids are pretend kids, then Christians are just God's pretend kids. And that's the truth some of you believe today. And that's why you struggle with the slavery of your sin. It's because you're saying, this is just pretend. God is just saying things about me that really aren't true. You know, like some parents do with their kids. They try to convince themselves they're not as bad as they really are. And everybody else is standing around. Have you not seen how bratty this child is? Oh, he's so sweet. He's so kind. He just loves it. No, that's not true. And some of us live that way before God, that he's saying that about us. Because we know how bratty and sinful and high maintenance we are. And so when we read the Bible and we read about God's love for us, we go, he's just saying that, but he doesn't really mean it. Adoption says he has to love you. He's committed to loving you. And it's not fake. It's real. It's as real as the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, his son, nailed to a cross. It's as real as an empty tomb. It is as real as Jesus standing at the right hand of God right now. It's real. And you got to believe that it's real. And so how does God convince you it's real? Verse 6. He gives you the status of the son through adoption, he doesn't stop there. This allows you into heaven. But then he goes even further, verse 6. And because you are sons, this is who you really are, your status before him, children of God, every privilege, every right that the son has, your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, 
the presence, the power, the authority of the Son. He has sent the Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So he doesn't just change your status. (laughs) He gives you his spirit. He, He gives you the experience of the Son, the power and the authority, the presence of the Son that lives within you. And what does it cause you to do? Abba, Father. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek. Paul doesn't use the Greek word here. He used the Aramaic word. Why does he do that? Because this is the word Jesus would have used in speaking to God the Father. And so what is he saying? Because of your faith in the Son, your status has been changed to Son, and now you relate to the Father just like the Son does. Abba, Father, you give him the same title that Jesus the Son gave. And notice he says, crying, Abba, Father. How does this work out? Well, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And when you believe the gospel, the Spirit of God takes you and immerses you in the Son. And so in the Son, all of God's love, Romans 5, is poured out upon you. The truth of the gospel, the, the Spirit begins to teach you that you are a son in the Son. And as you are convinced you are a son, you begin to speak to God the Father the same way the Son does. The same way the Son does now, the same way the Son always has. You look at Him and you say, that's my dad. That's my father. The same way Jesus would. Here's Here's how this works. If you went back to the nursery right now, and we we took a group of parents in there, And the children in there are your children. That's the only way this illustration works. And we have parents just walk into the nursery. When those little babies get a glimpse of mom and dad, they know their mom and dad. And the nursery worker is going to be trying to hide them. Because they, no, no, you can't see mom right now. Church isn't over yet. Even dads walk in. They know their parents that take care of them. They're with them all the time. They provide for them. And so when they walk by, they say, Wah! Mom, Dad, translation. They cry out. And that is the same experience you are to have to God as your Father in Christ. You know your dad in Christ. He has taken care of you. He provides for you. And in your gut, you cry out to him when you're hungry. You cry out to him when you need something. That's what the Spirit of God does inside you. You don't cry to anyone else. Dad, I need you now. That's my dad. That's my father. Abba, cry out. But what do you cry out for? Notice the text continues. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. You have the rights and authority and status as a son, so you're not working like a slave to get the affection of your father. The affection of your father is being poured out in Christ. The truth of it is real. So you're not a slave. 
your son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now he uses the term God here. Because of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have been adopted. They all have work in that. The Father sends the Son, the Son dies, the Spirit draws you in. They've adopted you. God has. And He's made you an heir to the kingdom. Going back to the first three verses. A slave and a child can't ask for the inheritance, but a son can. And so if you are in Christ, what are you doing? Abba, give me my inheritance now. And my inheritance is the kingdom that will purge sin and death from this planet. And my brother Jesus will rule and reign forever. I am an heir to that inheritance. Father, I want it now. Because there's nothing here that satisfies me. That's what a son does. That's what the work of the Spirit is in your life. In John 14, the Spirit is the presence of the promise when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. And that Spirit lives within you. In Ephesians 1, the Spirit is the seal of your inheritance. The Spirit is literally the stamp on your adoption papers. You deserve the kingdom because of Christ. In Romans 8, you groan. You groan for this kingdom to come as a son of God. This is your inheritance. And now you have a father that will give it to you. And so you cry for it. Abba. The Abba cry is a cry for rescue. It's the same cry Jesus had in the garden. Abba, let this cup pass from me. Rescue me. And you in a world cursed with sin and death... Long to be rescued, and you know who to call to rescue you, your Father. This is your identity. This is your status. And here's the reality. The degree to which anything else defines you, any other status in life defines you, is the degree to which you will cry out for things that will not satisfy you. If you're defined by any other identity... You won't be a son saying, I want the kingdom to come. No, you will be like an orphan and a slave looking for something else to satisfy you on the planet. And it won't do it. The degree which you are defined as an athlete, an employee, a student, a pastor, your marital status, those things define you. That's where you find your identity. You will be longing and asking for things, pursuing things that will never satisfy this longing in your heart for the kingdom. You will think a new career will satisfy me. Better health will satisfy me. A better marriage will satisfy me. If my kids would behave, that would satisfy me as a parent. And it would. Keep going. You, 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 you define yourself by, as a student. You long for grades and you get the grade and you get the achievement. And you think that's going to satisfy you and it doesn't. Why? Because God has implanted in the universe that only His kingdom will make things right and satisfy you. And then He has planted that longing in the soul of anyone who believes to long and cry for the kingdom. And so you realize, I don't need these other things. They're good and they're godly and they promote the gospel, but my ultimate identity is as a son who is loved by the Father and because of the Son, I deserve His kingdom and that is where you live and that is what balances and tempers all other longings and expectations in this world. You're not bouncing from identity to identity, status to status. 
You're not an orphan looking for a home. You're a son who is calling for the kingdom to come at all times. And that's what satisfies you. It is impossible to find security apart from the gospel in this world. It is impossible. You're not going to do it. There's no other status that that is going to ring in your soul contentment like the gospel is. Nothing else will do than to be known as a child of God, accepted and forgiven because of the work of the Son. Nothing else will satisfy you. And you know, and your experience is, nothing will Fulfill all of my hopes and dreams like the kingdom of a son that is coming. So stop playing games with the broken down toys in the orphanage. Stop trying to one-up all the other orphans. Stop acting like a slave. You're not a slave. The world is so fragile. And the things in this moment that you think are going to bring you contentment apart from Jesus Christ, apart from this reality of the gospel, they will not do it. They will never do it. The only thing that will bring you happiness is knowing in the Son, my sins have been forgiven and I am accepted and crying out because I hate this place. Rescue me. Rescue me. Come rescue me. It's the only thing that's going to do it. I'm sorry I'm a little fired up. But I see so many of us, including myself, longing for better status and inheritance. It ain't going to happen. And God is calling us today to trust Him and to pray like Jesus, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus promises us as sons, when we stand before the Father and we ask for bread, he's not going to give us a stone. Why? You give slave stones. You give slave stones and you say, get to work. No, he's going to provide for his children. And he's ultimately going to provide the kingdom. So in your sin, your response isn't to run from the Father. Your response is to run to the Father. Forgive me, bring the kingdom. Bring the kingdom is the only thing that's going to take care of my sin. As you face death and suffering, Abba, rescue me, rescue me. You see, a slave has no right to the inheritance, but a son does. I'll never forget early on after we had brought Jonah and Isaac home, and they just got showered with stuff all the time. It was frustrating for us. We're like, they survived in Ethiopia. They can survive without new bikes and stuff. They're going to be fine. But Jonah went through a stage where he'd received so much stuff and kindness and love from people. We would go into stores and he would ask for everything in there. We'd walk by a bike. He said, can I have that? Will you get that for me? We would be in the checkout line and he would ask for, can I have that? Butterfinger, can I have that? You don't even know what that is. You don't need, you can't have that. And he, he's still kind of that way. He's like, I, I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to do this. Well, Jonah, who's going to pay for that? I need a job, don't I? Yes, you need a job. But his status had changed and his experience had changed. He had gone from nearly dying of malnutrition to not needing or wanting anything 
And he knew his experience had changed, so he began to ask. And that's what a son does. Your status has changed, your experience changed, so it's okay to ask. You go to the father, I need this, I want this, and you express that as a son. He wants to hear those things. He may not give you all those things. He may not give you the bike and butterfinger. However, he's okay with you asking because it delights the father to know that you're acting like a son and not an orphan or a slave. And he loves that. Ask. On July the 13th, 2009, nine months after I first saw the picture on the screen earlier, I entered an orphanage in Ethiopia. And I turned to go up a dark stairwell. And immediately, almost out of nowhere, I was met with the word Ababa. Ababa. It's not Abba, but it means the same thing. In Isaac's native language, Ababa meant father. And it just so happened that's the only word in his language that both of us knew. And I couldn't, I didn't even, I'd never seen him in person. I thought it was him. And yet, Ababa, I knew it was him. And in that moment, as you see on the screen, that's Jonah and Isaac, when we first got them, Ethiopia, I realized and had more clarity about who I was in the gospel in that moment than I ever have. A son whose father is committed to him with unshakable love. My father is committed to rescue me. You see, when the judge said, Isaac, Joshua, Haskins, Jonah, Caleb, Haskins, with all rights and privileges as Haskins. In that moment, they weren't given new responsibility to me. That's not what adoption is. They weren't all of a sudden responsible to obey me. No, that court order was for me. I am legally responsible to take care of these boys as Haskins. That's what that means to be adopted. And that's what that means to be adopted in the son. Is God is saying, I am committed to you and I am responsible to you. That's what it means that you are his son. The judge who is also the father has sealed the court order with the blood of the son. He is committed to you with unshakable love. How do we know this? Because there was a day probably many days when baby Jesus the child Jesus looked up at his adoptive father Joseph and said Abba and Joseph picked him up took care of him fed him make sure he had it whatever he needed changed his diaper that probably taught Jesus how to pray in the garden when he needed his father. And he looked up to heaven and the terror and weight of the cross was bearing down on the Son of God, knowing he is going to do, endure the wrath for our sins. 
and he falls to his knees and he's sweating blood and he looks up to the Father in heaven and says, Abba, let this cup pass from me. Abba, let this cup pass from me. Abba, let this cup pass from me. And there was silence. And the Father in heaven did not reach down and rescue the Son. Because in that moment, he was rescuing you and me from our sin. Merry Christmas.